The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 11th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about the scandal in the LSU basketball program, which involves FBI wiretaps and is threatening my enjoyment of a very good season. The New York Times' Joe Drape will come on the show to talk about the deaths of 21 horses in just two months at California's Santa Anita Park. And the ringer's Brian Curtis will also be here to discuss Dan Jenkins, the legendary sports writer who died last week at age 90. Here with me in our Washington, D.C. studio is my co-host, Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Uh, I'm here, too. Just trying to get some banter going. Big What's weekend. It? Yeah. It what? was a big weekend. Penn beat Brown. Is that Penn what you're going to allude to? Uh, you were yeah. really crushed by that loss. So Brown basketball is a thing that I don't care about. I would have cared about it if they would have beaten Penn. Just- right. So this was basically a play-in game <laughs> to the Ivy League tournament. The Ivy League now has a tournament. I thought you were going to say it's a a play-in game to me making fun of you. Could be that also. And they lost. Yeah. Uh, Oh, well. But they didn't win, so you can't make fun of me. Go Quakers. Wait till next year. Quakers play Harvard in the one semifinal. Yale plays Princeton in the other semifinal this coming weekend. It's a loss for listeners, too. On ESPNU. If Brown had won, then Stefan would not have talked about Penn basketball. True. We, uh, We all lost here. Hang up, listeners. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. All right, let's get to the college basketball that I do care about. On Saturday night in Baton Rouge, the LSU men's basketball team beat Vanderbilt 80-59 to to win the regular season SEC title, first for LSU in a decade. They did so without their coach, Will Wade, and one of their star freshmen, Javante Smart. After Yahoo reported that the FBI had a transcript of a conversation in which Wade was talking about making a, quote, strong-ass offer to get Smart to go to LSU. ESPN later reported that in another conversation, Wade talked about Smart getting compensated more than the rookie minimum, presumably the NBA rookie minimum. Stefan, LSU is 26-5. and five. They're projected as a two or three seed in the NCAA tournament with Selection Sunday just less than a week away. The atmosphere at the game on Saturday was very weird as my fellow LSU fans were extremely excited about the SEC title, but also extremely mad that the school's administration had suspended Wade and withheld Smart from the game. They were chanting, free Will Wade, free Javante, and also fuck Aleva that being the athletic director, Joe Aleva. I will explain my thoughts on all this shortly. uh, But first, I just want to acknowledge that uh, I think we're professionally obligated to understand the FBI investigation into college basketball, which is where all of this stuff is coming from uh, and why Wade's conversations were recorded. But I honestly do not understand it. I have never 
understood it. Uh, I'm leaving it to you to explain it to me and to America. What is not to understand, Josh? The FBI and the legal system are, with the NCAA's approval, if not encouragement, looking for a way to criminalize behavior. Not looking for a way. I found a way to criminalize behavior that heretofore has not been criminalized, let alone pursued as a consistent violation of rules. Let us be clear, basketball coaches and shoe companies and agents and would-be agents and middlemen for agents and local boosters have been paying top talent to attend universities for more than 50 years. The NCAA and college basketball presidents and athletic directors like Joe Aleva have, of course, known this but chosen to stick their fingers in their ears and put their hands over their eyes until some enterprising reporter from Yahoo or some revenge-minded whistleblower reveals the passage of this dirty, dirty money and everyone proclaims that it is a soil on amateurism and the great game. And now it's a crime, all of which is the direct result of the existence of a black market created by college athletics and the cartel's refusal to compensate the athletes whose services are in the highest demand according simply to the demands of the market. If there is no above-board way for supply to meet demand, the market creates one. That, of course, is what has Keep been going. happening for decades. I'm on my soapbox. College sports has found a way to have its amateurism cake and eat it professionally. But that really still doesn't explain what the investigation is about either. The premise is that by paying basketball players under the table, universities are being defrauded because had they known that those players deceived because had they known that those players were receiving these illicit payments, Josh, they would not have offered them scholarships. The the U.S. attorney that prosecuted uh, these guys. So the guy that Wade was on the phone with, Christian Dawkins. Yeah was like trying to get this agency started. He's been sentenced to six months behind bars. And the U.S. attorney who did the prosecution after, um, you know, the sentences came out, et cetera, said with apparently no sense of irony or maybe like a very deeply buried sense of irony that um, guys like Dawkins, quote, deprived the universities of their economic rights, deprived the universities of their economic the rights. Whole thing is the incredible. universities. It is incredible. <laughs> it's really awesome. It's incredible. Okay, so Wade, unfortunately for him, just happened to be talking to this middleman, this like shoe company kind of middleman agent guy. Uh, th- this was the guy that he was caught on tape talking to about giving Javante Smart a strong ass offer. That's unfortunate. Um, and LSU fans have lamented the fact that why is our administration, you know, knuckling under here to the NCAA um, when, you know, there's been, even in this case, like Kansas assistant on tape talking about Zion Williamson, like North Carolina State, Arizona, uh, Louisville. Rick Pitino actually did get fired. Mm So uh, there is is some precedent for coaches uh, getting punished here. But it seems like uh, given that this is a really good season for LSU, why not just ride it out? There's no ironclad proof at at this point. Um, But from the administration side, what seems to be happening here, Stefan, is that Wade refused to to talk to the AD and the school president and explain what was going on here. There's also been some reporting that suggested that Wade had told the administration that he 
Um, that there was some like lesser version of this that came out a year ago, and he had assured them that nothing else would come out. And so this seems to be actually a workplace issue mm-hmm. more than a like uh, you know pearl clutching issue where they just don't trust him and they don't think he's being honest with them. That's at least my interpretation here. It's probably some combination. I mean, the workplace issue seems legit if he deceived them in some material way instead of saying, look, I did talk to this guy and yeah, there was this conversation that we had. Um, But they have to clutch their pearls at the same time because the NCAA requires pearl clutching on the part of universities. Otherwise, there would be the dreaded lack of institutional control. Correct. Um, And just the lack of contrition and the lack of sort of playing the part of the amateurs with the, you know, the wearing the white hats. The, the, the universities still fancy themselves the granters of this great opportunity to college athletes. We pay their room and board, and look, now we're giving them some stipends too. They get tuition. They have the opportunity to go on and do great things in life, all thanks to college athletics. Um, that myth has to be, that sham has to be propped up from by all actors here. Um, you know, when you look at the idea of these payments, you know, basically it was a way for universities to launder shoe company money in most cases so that they wouldn't be culpable. Mm-hmm. That they couldn't trace, you can't trace the fingerprints. The money was coming from the shoe companies through a middleman to the athlete's father or mother or to the athlete himself. Hey, we didn't know anything about it. Yeah. So, okay. Here's and to also, let me just bring it back to Will Wade to, to, to pretend that Will Wade in all likelihood wasn't involved in this sort of behavior throughout his career is stupid. I mean, it's, it's not a criticism of Will Wade to say that when he was a recruiter in his 20s as an assistant coach at places like Harvard and other places, this was the MO. You have to get the player. I mean, when he was at Harvard in the mid mid 2000s, Harvard came under suspicion for 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 shoddy anti-Ivy League recruiting policies and pleaded guilty to some bullshit no, secondary wor- violation. Nothing's worse than an anti-Ivy League uh, recruiting policy. Yeah. So there have been a lot of whispers around Wade. There was a Yahoo report a while ago before anything had come out that said that Wade's recruiting practices had kind of come under scrutiny. He was the head coach at Chattanooga. He was the head coach at VCU before LSU. And based on that earlier reporting, it seems like there was some resentment among other coaches uh, who are frequently the sources for these reports about Wade and the tactics that he would adopt on the recruiting trail. So, okay, here's my take on this, which I don't think many people or any people have gotten this right. So on the one hand, there's, for instance, a post on Deadspin, which has uh, appropriately a very anti-NCAA party line. And the headline is LSU coach Will Wade suspended indefinitely thanks to the NCAA's crusade against paying players, kind of casting him as a martyr a little bit, you know, not necessarily saying anything different than what we've been saying so far about or what you were saying about the black market and how this um, you know, inevitably leads to um, the, this sort of behavior. Then on the other side, you have Dan Wolken of USA Today, uh, my uh, least favorite sports writer, who writes, 
even if you don't like NCAA rules, even if you think amateurism is stupid, it is impossible to see LSU playing in this tournament as anything but a farce. Like not actually explaining why it would be a farce if you don't like NCAA rules or think no, no, amateurism is a stupid. Co- a couple graphs later, he says it's simply a matter of how much shame you're willing to set aside. If LSU plays in this NCAA tournament, it will be the ultimate admission that theirs is all gone. I would just point out here that if you set aside the shame, there would be no tournament because every NCAA program is involved in some sort of rules skirting behavior. Exactly. And that that is my point. And there is in um, among sports writers like Wolken on among fans with this is like events on message boards. There's just so much selective outrage about, um, you know, oh, this program is cheating. Oh, but if my coach gets caught doing it, then everybody is doing it. And that's actually not cheating. Um, Nobody actually has a consistent viewpoint on this stuff. And where I fall on this is that I think Will Wade is a sleaze. And I think that the NCAA rules on paying players are awful. Let's focus on Wade here for a second. Um, LSU's team this year, two of the key contributors were guys who were accused of um, sexual crimes at previous uh, stops. Neither one was charged with a crime. Um, And so you can talk about how it's only right and fair and reasonable for them to get a second chance. But uh, Wade... I think used the fact, I would argue, there's not been any reporting on this. This is just my opinion. I feel like he um, was willing to give these guys a second chance because uh, maybe other programs weren't. And this was an advantage that he could get for LSU by getting these guys who maybe had their, you know, quote unquote, reputations tarnished. Um I think the reason that he uh, is willing to pay players to get to the school is not because he feels like NCAA rules are immoral. It's because he wants to win. And the reason that he's so young and so successful is because he is obsessed with winning games. And that is the thing um, that he has gotten rewarded for over and over again and that fans and writers don't really care about. They want guys like this. Um, they they celebrate them. They celebrate them as like prodigies and heroes. And you know somebody like Dick Vitale, who I have like a major problem with. I've never liked Dick Vitale. Has been going on a tirade about Will Wade and how LSU needs to suspend him. His entire career, Vitale's entire career, has been about buffing up coaches, talking about what amazing leaders they are, talking about how moral they are. Guys like Rick Pitino, he's still talking up Rick Pitino, Shashevsky, everyone. Every game you listen to Dick Vitale, it's all about the coaches and all about how great they are. Leaders of boys. But the guys who succeed are the, are the ones who, uh, I'm not going to say are sociopathic, but amoral is probably a fair adjective to use. Um, you, you know, well, it the, depends. The sport, though. I mean, are you undercutting you, your own argument, though, Josh? You have to be a there moral. is no morality in the NCAA's rules. So if you ignore them, what's the problem? 
What I'm saying is that Will Wade would be willing to break rules that are moral and ethical and has been willing to break those rules. The consistent thing with him is rule breaking. Um, The inconsistent thing is whether those rules are moral or immoral. And the again, if you look consistently across who is successful as a coach in especially college sports, I think the exceptions are the ones who um, do everything by the book, who come up and build themselves up by paying their dues and by being good teachers and good leaders. And yet what we do is say that the ones who are successful are actually the good leaders of men and are actually the ethical ones. Um, And that's just totally fucked. And so I'm having kind of a hard time with this because I'm compromised by rooting for this team and rooting for the sport. I admit that I've enjoyed watching this team and watching this season because they're really fun and good at basketball. Um, And, you know, it's not something that is, you know, probably fair for me to get up on my soapbox and talk about, you know, what a bad guy this is. Um, But, you know, such is life, Stefan. Life is complicated. I'm bad. You're like less bad. Will Wade, not great. Javante Smart, love that guy. Great point guard. I, he is blameless in all of this. He is blameless in all of this. I think we can agree on that. Yeah. Yeah. The like craziest thing in all this is the, the recruiting scandal that undoes LSU basketball does not involve Ben Simmons. That's a thing that uh, is, is weird. But go ahead, Stephanie. Shaq's recruitment above board? You know, that was, that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, I mean, on the recruiting part, Josh – I don't think it's so surprising that a guy that has been at one, two, three, four different schools around the country, Northeast, South, you know, this is someone that does have contacts now. So while it may seem unusual that an SEC school will land a kid from New Jersey, maybe it's not when you have created, you've laid out the carpet in recruiting in what look like unusual places for particular schools. I mean, he was in the Northeast for a while. That is where you, and he's got contacts in the Northeast. And I don't know who his assistants are that are doing the current recruiting at LSU, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if they are regionally experienced. You know, Nas Reed wanting to go to LSU as a five-star recruit from New Jersey because Will Wade has contacts up there, yeah, maybe I guess I. Well, I should be clear. I don't think there's also an, a strong ass offer. But yeah, I should be clear. I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, with Wade or LSU paying him to right. come there. I'm not there saying was probably that a strong ass offer. I'm not saying that I have an issue with that. It's just like again that oh, we're surprised by this or the selective outrage. We're we're mad about um, you know him offering money to Javante Smart, but not um, you know offering a spot on the team to a couple of guys who were accused of sexual assaults. Like that seems a little rich to me. A little rich. How do you think they'll do in the tournament though? It honestly depends on whether smart can play. Like it seems plausible that he would be allowed to. I think Wade himself is not going to coach the team anymore. They were down to seven scholarship players on Saturday. One of which was a former uh, walk on, but uh, you know, if Smart is back 
uh, on the roster. I mean, I will say the whole like nobody believes in us thing is a little bit overblown. And there's often some kind of ex post facto logic there. Oh, they won and nobody believed in them. Thus, they won because nobody believed in them. But this is a really good team. They've won a lot of games against really tough competition this year. It's a balanced team. They, you know, one of their key contributors coming into the year, Wade Sims, was murdered before the season, um, who was the high school teammate of two of the guys on the team, Skylar Mays and, and Marshall Graves. They've seemed very close as a team. They've dedicated the season to Sims. They're now playing for the coach who all of the players seem to love. Um, they're playing for Javante Smart on Saturday, who they all seem to love. The entire fan base is behind the team and it, and hates the athletic department. So there is this kind of tornado of emotions going on to go with the fact that there's a lot of talent and that could go a bunch of different ways, but it would not shock me if they do very well uh, in the tournament. What I don't understand here beyond the ass covering on the part of LSU's athletic department, what reason is there really to suspend Will Wade and to not let Javante Smart play? Um, He's already played all season, if they're going to well, get, you sound like an LSU fan now. That's yeah, I mean, the same. Well, that's well, what I'm, people have been saying. Well, and I'm and I. If you're going to forfeit this. all the games, you're going to forfeit then... all the games anyway. Just say, you know, tell the NCAA to fuck off. We're he's going to coach. He's going to play. Do with us what you would have done anyway, and what you will do anyway if we win the national championship. It's the institutional control thing. I think they have to show the NCAA that they will come to heal. That they will, you know, win. When you're shown this transcript, um, it would be an act, a defiant act. It would be a defiant act, and, and I don't expect I that to happen. I think they are unwilling to be defiant. Right. I think we all sort of wish in our in our heart of hearts that someone will stand up, whether it's the players at some point saying, screw it, we're going on strike, or an institution saying, this is all a farce. Let's end it, and here's how we're going to contribute to it, bringing it down. Go Tigers is basically what you just said. Go Quakers. Uh, That'd be a first round matchup. (laughs) Then you'll care. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our conversation about the cluster of deaths of horses at Santa Anita Park, uh, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I will be uh, reading from our favorite Dan Jenkins stories. We're going to be getting to... Dan Jenkins a little bit later in the show uh, with Brian Curtis uh, to hear that conversation, to hear a little bit uh, of our favorite Dan Jenkins material. Join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
Horses die at racetracks all the time. The website Horse Racing Wrongs documented 17 a week last year, 879 in all, but it estimated that the actual figure is at least twice that. But even by that unpleasant statistical fact, the deaths of 21 horses at historic Santa Anita Park in California between the end of December and the beginning of March was astounding. The track has been shut down for an investigation into the deaths of horses with names that now sound poignant, like Unusual Angel, Last Promise Kept, and Let's Light the Way. Joe Drape covers horse racing for the New York Times. He's also the author of American Pharaoh, the untold story of the Triple Crown winner's legendary rise. Hey, Joe. Stephen, good to be with you. Josh, good to be with you. Wish it was different subjects, but here we are. Tell us first, Joe, the the basics of this investigation into the horse deaths. Are there any good explanations for why there has been this rash of fatalities? You know, there's been a it's a perfect storm of things that has happened here out at Santa Anita. You've had bad weather out there for Southern California standards. Nearly 12 inches of rain, coldest February in 25 years. What that does to the physical racetrack is it makes it very hard because to keep the rain and the wet out of it, they do what they call sealing it. And that's just making it packed dirt so it's really hard. So the surface has gotten concrete-like. That's one thing. The second thing is there's a decline in the horse population. You know, when I started doing this in 1998, there were 35,000 foals born a year, and they were presumably headed to the racetrack. Now we're down to 20,000 foals. And at the same time, Racing has become a year-round activity, 365 days a year. You have horse races at different parts of the country, at different tracks, all the time, around the clock. So, you know, with the less horses, that means there's less quality horses. And they are fragile, and they are run more than they should be. And that has added to the problem. And then, you know, we did a investigation in 2012 of horse racing, and we found 25 horses died a week. And a lot of that was just because of over-medication, drugging them, not drugging them necessarily to make them run faster, but to give them painkillers so they could run through and stay on the track. Some of it was last lack of regulation and protections on just the safety and welfare of the animals. So, you know, that has come into play. Now, what has happened out there recently over the weekend is they came out and they said, well, we can't find anything in the track. And, you know, that sort of was expected. They had 21 fatalities. 16 of them were on the main track. Five were on the turf. Nine were in the morning. Nine were during, or five were, were during the races. So what happened is all these factors kind of led into this perfect storm of cheap horses being overrun on a hard racetrack. When you guys did that investigation for the Times in 2000. In 12, um, you know, there's a sentence that I'm looking at now. Many are inexpensive horses racing with little regulatory protection. You noted that Santa Anita, Belmont, and Saratoga had rates of fatalities that were higher than the national average. But a lot of the focus was on tracks whose names that, you know, most people haven't heard of before. Um, So that's why the Santa Anita of it is so significant that this you would think would be a race course where they would have 
um, the wherewithal and the finances and the trainers and the quality of horse where you wouldn't see a huge number of fatalities like this in a short amount of time. Yeah, Josh. I mean, Santa Anita is one of the nation's signature tax tracks. Uh, Seabiscuit famously ran out there. It's held the Breeder Cup World Championships several times. That's when the best horses in the world come, and they're going to do it again in November. Uh, this is startling. And then the other thing that you know puts a, a, an edge on this is we are in tri- triple crown season. The prep races are being run for the Kentucky Derby. This is the time of year where the three million hardcore horse aficionados or enthusiasts expands to 30 million of casual sports fans who just want to see, you know, the history of the race, the hats, the mint juleps, the, just the whole pageantry behind horse racing. So, uh, you know, they had to close it. And, you know, animal rights is much more in the forefront of people's consciousness than it was. Well, I want to talk about the business of horse racing a little bit here, Joe. Uh, These track owners want to get more out of their tracks. Santa Anita, if you could explain, is owned by what is effectively like a a horse racing, you know, mini conglomerate. They're sort of like... uh, Companies that come in, take over racetracks, and find ways to make them more effective and generate more revenue. How does that impact the uh, a lot of these factors that you've cited that go into overtraining, overrunning, overscheduling races at tracks? You know, it's a business, and that's what puts a lot of pressure on everybody. The Santa Anita is owned by the Stronic Group. They have a dozen or so, so tracks. They're full-time racetrack operators. They sent Tim Ritvo, who's their troubleshooter, out to Santa Anita. And the first thing he did, he said, we got to be more profitable. So you got to get your horses out of the barn more often to run more races so we can attract more bettors who will bet more money. And, you know, that's pressure one. Second, you got the trainer who's the eyes and ears, really, of the health of the horse. He's got an owner who says, look, I'm paying you $110 a day, and my horse hadn't run in six weeks, so let's get him in a race. And let's not only get him in a race, let's win a race, because that's going to offset the money I'm paying you. So, you know, there's pressure on that way. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of the tension between the, the economic realities and the fact that this is no longer the sport of kings. You know, when horse racing was in its heyday, when it was, you know, it's America's oldest sport, it truly was the sport of kings. First in Europe and in America, it was old families like the Phipps and the Vanderbilts who really just raised horses to race them, didn't really need the money. They just kind of ran them for the sport of things, and that's no longer the case. And then, you know, the third thing that nobody really talks about is the states involved. Every state, New York, California, they're taking tax dollars out of this. They're taking up to 15% out of the bets that go in and the purses that go out. So, you know, you got too many mouths to feed with too little horses, too, too few horses. So the Jockey Club keeps track of statistics on fatalities. And according to their numbers, since 2009 and the most recent numbers were for 2017, there's been a 20% drop in the risk of fatal injury across all surfaces, 17% drop on dirt, 30% drop on turf. Um, In my view, the Santa Anita cluster here, and I think it's fair to call it that, it's like an epidemiological 
uh, cluster uh, of of deaths, and you want to look into what caused it and what can be done to prevent it. But um, you know, we're talking about it. It's gotten a lot of attention. I think it's shocking to people just what's normal, um, and it brings attention to the fact that yes, a lot of horses die. Stefan put that in the introduction. Um, the you know numbers last year was almost four figures, right? Um, but if you actually look into the statistics that the Jockey Club has and the fact that it's getting better, the fatalities are going down, that's a kind of a confusing thing to wrap your head around when I think most people aren't aware that the numbers are so high. To begin with. And But I think it's important to also point out, Joe, that Santa Anita has had traditionally a higher rate of deaths. I was looking at the California horse board, horse racing board statistics. Santa Anita's averaged about 50 deaths a year from 2007 to 2018. So it's already elevated there. And then this cluster, this epidemiological cluster brings it into sharper focus that maybe there's something wrong with the way this track or this company is running this business. You know, that suggests that, but I'm going to suggest something else. It's the way horses are treated by many trainers at many racetracks. The numbers have come down because more restrictions have been put in. Vets have to look at them around the clock. One of the things they're going to do now that started this morning, in fact, is they are going to vet each horse for workouts in the morning. Rick Arthur, the medical director out at Santa Anita, told me last week that in the afternoon when the horses race, they have multiple examinations. The drug flow is regulated. Uh, it's safe for them. In the morning, he said, we let the trainers train and the private vets vet. And so what happens is they do push these horses in the morning. There's horses that shouldn't be out there that are out there in the morning. Uh, so, you know, that's Santa Anita is going to start regulating the morning workouts with extra vets and extra examinations. Uh, you know, there's no really, and both of you guys are putting a fine point on this, a lot of horses die in horse racing, and that's something that they're going to be unable to explain away. And, you know, again, from the time I'm doing this, when in 1996, when uh, Barbaro snapped his leg in the Preakness, and we had a long watch, and they tried to save his life, the refrain from the powers that be were, that's racing. That's just racing. Now, you know, that has changed drastically over the last 15 years. But again, and they've anticipated this problem. They have these symposiums where they bring the greyhound industry people over. And the greyhound industry, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, there were 200 greyhound tracks. Now they're down to 17, and 11 of them are going to sunset in Florida in 2020. So, you know, they're sort of racing themselves out of business if they don't get a handle on this. So, I mean, we've been saying that horses die. What actually happens is that horses get injured. They break their legs most commonly, and then they're euthanized or destroyed is the parlance. Um, How much of this um, phenomenon or this epidemic could be explained by the fact that economically um, it it's very ex- expensive to try to save a horse's life and uh, or how much of it is that they would have no quality of life if that surgery was performed. You know, the economics 
is really takes a backseat to the fact that they cannot they cannot it's very painful when something happens to their legs and they cannot survive and I'll I'll get more in the weeds than you wanted on this unless they can stand and move and walk their organs collapse inside them and that's what happened to Barbaro they you know that was the Firestone heirs and they basically spent a whole lot of money and kept him alive for nine months but eventually you know his legs never got there and he foundered which is a very painful, you know, breaking of the crumbling of the legs and the organs. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's more the, the problem of, you know, it's it's the merciful thing to do is to put them down. Yeah, these are fragile creatures that are not built, as you put in your Times piece the other day. They have ankles that are with the, that are as thick as a Coke bottle. Um, they're not meant to to carry the the force of of their weight at the speeds that they run. And yet, right. and yet they do. And you know, obviously, the way they are bred and the drugs that they're given have all been factors, as you've reported, and is at this point pretty commonly known. Well, how much in, of this, this is this an industry is an American phenomenon, though? Like Jane Smiley, in L.A. Times wrote a piece saying that she has a trainer friend in France. And if we went by the French method, then this wouldn't happen, that this is like an American phenomenon. Is that correct? It is. And I know Jane and I know her friend Gina, who uh, trains over there, who, listen to this guy, she was a former editor at the International Herald Tribune. and Now she's a horse (laughs) trainer. And there's no doubt the death rates and the mortality rates are way less in England, Europe, Australia, those places. And it's for simple reasons that need to be duplicated here. One, they run on turf, a far more forgiving service. And I mean, turf is in grass, and they've run over undulating hills, more natural terrain. Two, they don't race as much. They have a spring season, and then they take off the summer and come back in the fall. Uh, they are allowed to be horses in between. They're not kept in stalls on a racetrack off the interstate. You know, they live out in the woods and in stables and are allowed to be a horse. And the third thing is there's zero tolerance of drugs over there. No, no Lasix, which helps you cut weight and run faster. No anti-inflammatories for the pain. Uh, they got stricter rules and stiffer punishments. And they also don't allow the whip over there. They don't, jockeys can hit them three times in the stretch with lighter whips, but that's it. So, you know, there is a better way to do this. It just America has chosen not to. Reminds me of the famous Onion headline about mass shootings in America. No way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. Yeah, no, and it is. And, uh, you know, you guys know a little bit. I, I have an increasingly complicated relationship with the sport. You know, I've owned horses. I've been a fan of it since I was a kid. Uh, I've written about it. I've written two books directly about it, and then third about a a biography of a black jockey. It's hard for me to balance the way this could be and the history and the heritage involved in it with how it's conducted right now. Joe Drape covers horse racing for the New York Times. One of his books about horse racing is American Pharaoh, the untold story of the Triple Crown winner's legendary rise. Joe, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, guys. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In his obituary for Dan Jenkins, the ringer's Brian Curtis wrote that he wasn't just a sports writer. He was a sports writerly state of being. Jenkins drank and smoked and typed his way from the college football stadiums of the Old Southwest Conference to Augusta National, writing game stories for Sports Illustrated and columns for Golf Digest and comic novels like the legendary Semi-Tough. He died last week at 90, and joining us to help memorialize him is Brian Curtis. Hey, Brian. Hey, guys. In your obit, you wrote that Jenkins was a writer whose aura you replicate, or failing that try to stand in for a while and reading your obit and memories of a lot of uh, writers who knew Jenkins and admired him. There is so much of that aura. Can you just take a shot at describing it for us? Well, he was just, he was simply the coolest man in the world. Uh, I think we could almost leave it at that. I mean, he, Bud Shrake, who was another sports illustrator writer who went to the same high school that Dan did in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, told me one time that Dan, when he was at a bar, would always have three drinks in front of him. He'd have a scotch and water, he'd have a backup scotch and water, and he'd have a cup of coffee, like at all times. And somebody asked me this weekend, said, now when he finished the first scotch and water, did he drink the backup, or did the backup kind of remain the backup in perpetuity <laughs> like Colt McCoy or something like that? And I said, I don't know, and I wish I'd asked him that question. <laughs> but, um, you know, he just sort of had this idea of what a sports writer should act like. And it was almost kind of a movie idea. You know, he'd come around a bar and he called it whip out money and he'd whip out a couple of giant bills and throw it on the bar before he even ordered a drink. Uh, he'd pay everybody's tabs on the generous time life expense account. <laughs> he'd, uh, one time there's a legendary one where it was over $2,000 uh, for a dinner and time life got really mad at him. Even by time life standards, that was pretty crazy. He just, he just he just seemed and he was he always had had the last line he was very very clever even well into his 80s he was funnier than anybody in person and I just think I just don't know it's like it's like if you want to design a sports writer from scratch especially from that era he would have acted exactly like Dan Jenkins I think the most important distinction to make about Jenkins' career, and we can get into the Sports Illustrated in the 60s um, and the, the sort of the, the posse of, of amazing talent that existed there and reshaped the profession. But the distinction for me is that Dan Jenkins wasn't a reporter. He was a writer. And sports just happened to be the place that he decided to spend his time um, he wasn't Frank DeFord trying to craft these literary profiles of people. He wanted to go to events, learn about the people, hang out with the people so that he could really understand them, and then produce on deadline very often these incredibly literary and lovely game stories. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's actually the key distinction is that he was at Sports Illustrated, the great literary you know, proving ground of sports writing in the 20th century, but he was a deadline writer at Sports Illustrated. And that's, and that's a huge difference. You know, he, he, told, me, he told me this one time, because I, I sort of asked him, I said, Dan, why didn't you write more profiles? And he said, I'm not Gary Smith. Gary Smith liked to dig deeper. F that. I like to take my first impression and roll. 
And, you know, when you look at those golf pieces or those great college football pieces, he essentially, he had an advantage over the newspaper guys in that he could kind of hang around for a week and, as you say, take in all this stuff by osmosis. But as soon as the event was over, he had to just sit down and write. I think we're going to talk about his Texas-Arkansas piece, but, you know, that wasn't one of these, like, Roger Angel things where you cover the World Series and then it's in the New Yorker in December. That, that, that didn't work like that. That was going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated the next week. Right, and so, those deadlines are tight. It's, they were tight at Sports Illustrated, and I'm sure they still are, but it was event on Saturday. You better be done by Sunday. I think so, and probably like Saturday night, right. you know, with the way the magazine went. He, I mean, he went down, he took his boxes of Winston's, and he typed it out. And by the way, with Dan, Dan wasn't asking to, to take an extra day. That is not how he worked. He was going to do his best job, and then he was going to go to the bar. That was it. <laughs> Dan, Dan wasn't going to, you know, bleed out like Red Smith and go, oh, give me another hour, give me another hour. No, he, he was just going to be done. So we all read that Texas Arkansas piece. This was in the December nineteen uh, sixty nine, December fifteenth, nineteen sixty nine issue. Texas by an eyelash. This was one of the games of the century in college football. This is the one that Richard Nixon famously attended. Number one versus number two. Um, and one of the things that I noticed about the piece, Brian, along with um, a bunch of great lines, was that this was a triumph of access. Um, mm-hmm. And he was very good friends with Daryl Royal, the colorful Texas coach. And a lot of the great lines in the piece are Royals. Now, do you have a sense of whether <laughs> Royals quotes were being transcribed accurately? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's sort of like the Yogi Berra thing, right? We, we think of Daryl Royal as the colorful Daryl Royal. And you sort of wonder how, if he was colorful, if or if Dan Jenkins, who was you know the funniest guy on earth, was putting was was shaping some of those lines. I'm I'm guessing it was about half and half. Well, let me read one of them. Uh, Royal said they're going to come after us with their eyes pulled up like BBs, and they'll be defending every foot as if Frank Broyles, the Arkansas coach, has told them there's a 350 foot drop just behind them into a pile of rocks. If you believe that, you're pretty hard to move around. <laughs> Great line, Daryl slash Dan. <laughs> yeah, and he was, you know, he was hanging out with Royal back in Austin at the beginning of that week, which he kind of, you know, indirectly references. And then he has this line in there where he says, Royal was driving with a friend back to Rogers, Arkansas after a workout. That was Jenkins. And, you know, in, in those days in Sports Illustrated, you couldn't, you didn't quite do the Mike Silver thing where you're driving around with an NFL player. You, kinda, you wanted to kind of soft pedal that a little bit. But, but yeah, he, he knew these guys and he was a reporter in a way, in the sense that he just knew everybody and could kind of figure out what they were thinking. He wasn't really interested in scoops. He just right. interested in making my game story better. Right. And, and I should probably clarify a little bit, too. There were times, as with the Joe Namath profile, very famous Joe Namath profile from 1966, where it wasn't necessarily just a game. It was him hanging out in the same way he hung out with Dower Royal for a week before the Arkansas game. And the lead of that story from October 17th, 1966, is really amazing. Um, (laughs) Let me just read it. Stoop-shouldered and sinisterly handsome, he slouches against the wall of the saloon, a filter cigarette in his teeth, collar open, perfectly happy and self-assured, gazing through the uneven darkness to sort out the winners from the losers. That's a great first sentence. He, of course, is referring to women whom he's, you know, ogling in in the bar. Um, (laughs) But that's a great first sentence. Yeah, and he could have written profiles if he wanted to. 
He just didn't want to. <laughs> he just didn't. He was You know, the other thing I think that's interesting about Dan and I compared him and in Frank DeFord a lot in my in my obit in the Ringer because I think they are the two guys at Sports Illustrated. They were, they are one and two. We could we could put a lot of people on that Rushmore, but I think in a way they're the they're the sort of two de- de- definitional writers of the magazine. And you know, Frank was sort of a kind of a literary sports writer. Dan was a sports nerd. He really liked sports and he really cared about who won the national championship yeah. in a particular year. And I think that's interesting. I also think the interesting thing about that Namath profile, which I would encourage everybody to read, is you can tell Dan really liked Namath because he was pretty much against pro football mm-hmm. as a force in American life. He didn't like it. He had to cover it for SI for over a decade, Didn't not particularly happily. But Namath was one of the few guys he could look at and be like, okay, this guy's cool. Uh, this this is a good reason to write about the NFL. So Jenkins rather famously was really close with Ben Hogan and the exact opposite of that with Tiger Woods. Um, He asked for a sit down with Tiger and kind of explicitly was connecting it with the sit downs that he used to do with the likes of Ben Hogan and Tiger's people said they were not interested. And Jenkins then was not interested in Tiger. He called him an asshole, which is not incorrect. Um, (laughs) I'm curious for your thoughts on what that said about Jenkins, that the fact that Tiger Woods was an asshole made such an impression on him and mattered to him so much because, you know, lots of athletes are assholes, but um, it just seemed to really, really bother Jenkins in a way that was kind of surprising to me. He, um, I don't think Dan was immune from, if you uh, are nice to me and talk to me and give me interviews, then you're a good guy. And if you shun me and stand me up, then you're the worst guy in the world. I don't think he was like any sports writer. I don't think he was immune to that at all. I remember talking to him about the Tiger thing once, and he told me, he said, I, there's some things I want to ask Tiger about. This is when Tiger was pretty young. Um, and I think there are some things he, he'd want to ask me about meaning about Hogan and about, you know, Nicholas and Palmer and what those guys were like and what it was like to watch them win those now legendary tournaments. So I think, you know, I think part of it appealed to his ego and just that he was this, at the time, was this living legend of golf writing. And the fact that the next big thing didn't want to talk to him. As you point out, he happened to be exactly right about Tiger. And nobody relished Tiger's fall from grace. Uh, with the sex <laughs> stuff and all that, more than Dan Jenkins. I mean, he just loved it. And he got so many columns. And this, of course, culminated when he wrote a fake interview with Tiger, and then Tiger got mad about it in the Players' <laughs> Tribune, not kind of not understanding what parody was, which was really one of the most indelible sports writing moments I can remember in the last 10 years. But that episode really dovetails with, I think, Dan Jenkins' overall philosophy about what sports should be and what athletes should be. He appreciated athletes for how great they were at what they do, and he admired them for that. But at the same time, he really did have this sort of nostalgic code about what they should be as human beings, that they should be good people. Jack Nicholas was a good person. Ben Hogan was a good person. Daryl Royal was a, a, a stitch to hang out with, and that made him a good person. And he applied that moral code consistently. And if you read 
the appreciation that his daughter, the great Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post, wrote for him over the weekend, that really does come through, that for Jenkins, there was a code to life, and it applied to his job more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I'm, Sally knows him a lot, hell of a lot better than I do, so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, you know, want to want to try to contradict her. But I would say there are people who are not known as particularly nice people whom he loved, and because they love Dan Jenkins, you know, one, a great one, a great mm-hmm. example of that is Tom Watson. You know, after he wins the Duel in the Sun at, at Turnberry, he and Jenkins and Jenkins' wife all went out to dinner and just had this great long dinner on <laughs> after after the tournament was over. Amazing access now to think about. But, you know, those those people, you know, appealed to Dan because they liked Dan. Yeah. And, you know, if you liked Dan, I think you were in the good club and it was hard to get out of it. Let's talk about um, the novels. And Semitoff is the most famous one. Uh, there were a bunch. Brian is probably one of the few people who's... Have you read all of them, Brian? Uh, 90%, <laughs> 85%. Um, what's your sense of what um, Dan Jenkins's novelistic output came from? Was it um, similar to uh, the pieces for SI, where he would just kind of you know gather material out in the world and just put them in the mouths of these characters because he was just kind of overflowing with this material? Or was there kind of a different uh, goal or different style there? I'll give you a couple of, of references. And this is came from my talks with him. One is I think that Dan, you know, loved dirty jokes and couldn't get them into Sports Illustrated. And a novel was a great place to get in the way athletes actually talked and the kinds of things like sex and uh, booze that they were actually interested in that you couldn't put into a family magazine. The other, the other really interesting kind of literary uh, precursor to it is Jerry Kramer's book, Instant Replay, mm-hmm. which Dick Schaap had written. And that just comes out just a couple years before. And it's this real kind of funny, and speaking of putting lines in people's mouths, but this really funny human uh, look at what it's like to be an NFL player. And I think Dan read that and thought, there's a novelistic version of this. There's a fictional version of this where it can, be, it can kind of hit the same notes but go even farther because I can make stuff up. I actually asked him at one point, I said, did you, I thought he had based it on Ring Lardner's book, You Know Me Al, where the you know, baseball player is writing letters to a friend because in semi-tough it's a football player essentially reading, you know, writing a piece by sort of speaking it into a recorder, which is kind of the same conceit. But Dan said he didn't think that Ring Lardner's book was actually very funny. Uh, which is a very Dan thing to say. But yeah, so I think, I think in a way, I think the Kramer thing is the biggest thing of all. And I think he just, he just gathered so much NFL material and funny football material that he just wanted a place to put it in. Do you want to read the beginning of uh, Semi-Tough, Stefan? Sure. Do we need to put a uh, trigger warning? <laughs> because it is pretty irreverent. I'll read as much of it as we decide to include. All right. I guess by now there can't be too many people anywhere who haven't heard about Billy Clyde Puckett, the humminist bitch that ever carried a football. Maybe you could find some communist chinks someplace who don't know about me, but surely everybody in America does if they happen to keep up with pro football, which is what I think everybody in America does. That and jack around with somebody else's wife or husband. Right, we got to the Asian slur part, but we didn't get to the African-American slur part. Uh, Dan dropped the N-word quite a lot in Billy Clyde Puckett's mouth in Semi-Tough. I actually asked Sally about this one time, 
And she said that he didn't care, that for him it was a character and that he was trying to embody a character, a football player, a composite sketch of people that he had gotten to know covering football over the years. Yeah, so, Southern I mean, white boy. This is, this is the line that he was trying to tread, or at least publicly say he was trying to tread, which is, you know, I think in, in semi-tough, I think it's pretty obvious. You have these kind of benighted good old boys from Fort Worth, Texas, and this is the way they think, and this is the way they talk. He got a note from Alex Haley, who wrote the book Roots after this came out, and Alex told him, I get what you're doing here. Like that was, that was a, he was, he, you know, he sort of said, you know, you're, I see what you're doing. I, I understand it. I appreciate it. That was kind of a big moment hmm. in, in, in Dan's life, which is really interesting. I thought in the later novels, I thought that sort of mask of, of satire and that kind of, you know, being Mark Twain a little bit really wore away. Yeah. And it was sort of Dan who was, you know, famously conservative and famously uh, un-PC and famously didn't like to be told what to do by anybody sort of thing, let me see if I can get away with just telling a bunch of racist jokes in a book and, and, and not sort of, you know, saying, that, you know, this is the character and this is the way these kind of ignorant people talk. Um, it's really, really stark and it got more stark as you went later in the books. And, you know, again, I just think one, it just, it just, it was a totally different kind of literature than he was, than at least we thought he was attempting in Semi-Tough. Yeah, and in, in his later years, he became known for tweeting during the golf majors. He would have somebody type the the tweets for him. Right, right. Brian? he was allergic to electricity, I believe. This is why <laughs> he tweeted in 2010. Uh, Ye Yang is only three shots off the lead. I think we got takeout from him last night, which occasioned uh, the usual kind of freak out. Uh, I think you know appropriately yeah, enough uh, in this case, but. Um, you know, you write in your obit, Brian, you didn't agree with the guy's politics. You uh, And you, neither for that point did his daughter. No, she was, she was, she was the, op- no, I didn't. And, you know, I was just, he was a guy, it's funny, we're both from Fort Worth, Texas. I guess I haven't said yet. And we both went to the same high school. And, you know, he reminded me of people that I knew from that generation at that time and place. He was exactly like those people. And he was just he was just more talented and funnier than those people. But his attitudes about race uh, were very very similar. And his attitudes about don't tell me what to say, don't tell me what it's okay to say, in you know 2015, 2016, whenever he made that tweet, uh, were were just exactly the same. Yeah, I thought Kevin Van Valkenburg put it well. Um, in uh, Richard Deitch for the Athletic collected a bunch of people's thoughts and. And Kevin wrote um, that Jenkins came to embody a charming and unapologetic American maleness that's no longer exactly in vogue. That's okay. Times change and literary idols can be imperfect people. Yep, I think that's right. And I just, I just think it's important to, to consider both. And it was funny. And this was not something that was, you know, went unremarked upon in his life. You mentioned it. Uh, you mentioned the, the tweet you know, reviews of his later books often mention this and say, geez, there's just a lot of, you know, race stuff in these books, and, and these are getting very, very sour and sort of, you know, angry. And, you know, that's part of Dan's legacy just as much as anybody else. He certainly, he, he would have been the last guy that wanted to, to shy away from that. You know, he had this, he wrote the, his memoirs a couple of years ago. And by the way, this is just like the last truly great, 
piece of writing that Dan Jenkins delivered. That memoir is incredibly well written, and I wouldn't say that about many of his recent books. That book is incredible. And, you know, at the end, he was, it's this sort of delightful memoir about growing up in the 20s and, and in Fort Worth and, of course, being an SI writer. And he just puts in this rant about political correctness at the end. And his editor said, gee, Dan, don't you think people will be upset uh, if, you, if you throw this in here? And Dan's line was, F people. <laughs> so, you know, again, I don't think he'd mind us all having this conversation. He would, he would certainly, uh, certainly dispute our conclusions, but, you know. Dan, Dan wouldn't hide anything. All right. Well, let's raise our backup scotch and water and our uh, number one scotch and water to Dan Jenkins. Brian's uh, obit, we'll put a link to it on our show page. Uh, Brian also wrote a great uh, profile of Dan Jenkins uh, in 2014 with the headline, Ben Hogan isn't walking out of that sand trap. Uh, Brian, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls, Josh. I think we should uh, find another semi-tough character to honor Dan Jenkins this week. I'm looking at the uh, review of Semi-Tough in 1972 mm-hmm. in the New York Times Book Review. It was written by David Halberstam. He liked it. <laughs> it is a book that is about sports, but not about sports. And it is a very funny book, a marvelous book. I loved it. I read it out loud to my wife, who does not like football one bit, and she loved it. It is outrageous. It mocks contemporary American mores. It mocks Madison Avenue. It mocks racial attitudes. It mocks writers like me. And it even mocks sports writers for Sports Illustrated, like Dan Jenkins. All right, some of the other characters in the book, Josh. Billy Clyde Puckett, the main one, his, uh, his running mate, roommate, buddy, Marvin Shake Tiller. Good name, Shake Tiller. Um, who else do we have? We got uh, Dreamer Tatum, Elroy Blunt, Big Ed Bookman. Those are all pretty good names that Dan Jenkins came up with. Got to give him credit. Yeah. Sounds which, like a good book. Which one do we want to use? Shake Tiller's pretty great. All right, what's your Shake Tiller, Stefan? In my afterball last week, Josh, I mentioned a 1975 profile of then ginger-haired revolutionary Bill Walton in Crawdaddy magazine. The profile was written by Michael J. Kaufman. Kaufman also did features for Crawdaddy about Evil Knievel and Muhammad Ali. He wrote a story for Sport magazine titled Pee Wee Pill Poppers that I can't find online. And I discovered from the late 1960s to the early 80s, Kaufman was a sports columnist for the Daily World, the only Marxist daily news newspaper in the United States. Kaufman, though, didn't use his name at the Daily World. He wrote under the byline Mike J. Ira Burkow, then of the Newspaper Enterprise Association, profiled him in 1976. Mike J. told Burkow that he used his first and middle names for his Daily World work so that the stigma of writing for a Marxist newspaper wouldn't hurt him getting freelance work. J. Kaufman also said he didn't want to embarrass 
his parents. He was a nice Jewish boy from Long Island. Before it was known as the Daily World, the paper was the daily worker and organ of the U.S. Communist Party until it broke from the Soviet Union after revelations of Stalin's atrocities. The paper had an unlikely legacy in sports. For a decade before Branch Rickey signed Jackie Robinson, Daily Worker sports editor Lester Red Rodney led the first public campaign to integrate the sport. Rodney's 2009 obituary in the New York Times described him as a, quote, card-carrying member of both the Communist Party USA and the Baseball Writers Association of America. When Mike Jay joined the Daily World, mainstream coverage of sports social issues was infrequent and inconsistent and largely pro-owner and anti-athlete. But the 60s and early 70s forced the public to reckon with the overlap between sports and the outside world. It's getting harder and harder to write sports differently, Kaufman, as Mike Jay told Ira Burkow. Times are changing and several members of the establishment press are taking a deeper and more human look into sports in our society. Still, the Mike Jay and Bob Lipsites, who viewed sports through the lens of inequality, civil rights, and discrimination, remained the exception at the time. I read a random selection of Mike Jay's work in the Daily World. In his very first story in October 1968, he dubbed Madison Square Garden the house that felt built. The coinage referred to Irving Felt, the businessman who tore down the gorgeous Beaux-Arts Pennsylvania station to build the ugly arena. When the pitcher's Andy Messer Smith and Dave McNally won free agency in 1975, Jay got an interview with baseball union leader Marvin Miller. When the boxer Willie Klassen died in the ring in 1979, Jay didn't blame the ref or the corner man. He blamed a system that permits a man to fight again within weeks of being knocked unconscious in a previous bout. Pro boxing, Mike Jay wrote, more than any other sport mirrors the ugliest aspects of capitalism. When a dying Vince Lombardi in 1970 left his sickbed to urge NFL owners not to cave to player demands, Jay wrote, there wasn't a dry millionaire's eye in the place when the great Lombardi told them not to be pushed around by a bunch of kids. And when Bill Walton and the Portland Trailblazers won the NBA championship in 1977, Mike Jay gleefully celebrated Walton's revenge on the basketball and media establishments that had attacked him for everything from his politics to his dietary choices. Without uttering a single acrimonious word, Jay wrote, he has stuck it to them, rubbed their faces in it. The idiots have no choice but to give him his due or be exposed as the ignorant clowns they are. It is sweet. Mike Jay's column was titled The View from Left Field. Today there are Mike Jay's and left field views all over the media from Dave Zirin at The Nation to a guy named Al Neal who writes for People's World, the web descendant of the Daily Worker, to the staff of Deadspin and the Undefeated, to everyone who has typed a column in support of Colin Kaepernick or against USA Gymnastics or called out the hypocrisy of billionaire team owners or the exploit of NCAA or the venal sportocrats at FIFA. Sports are better because of the Lester Rodneys and Mike Jay's and sports journalism is too. One more thing, Josh? Yes. Want to do one more thing? I was looking for kind of the perfect Daily Worker, Daily World sports page. I've got two candidates. February 1975, Mike Jay's column about the possibility of Pirates outfielder Richie Zisk challenging the reserve clause, a photo of softball pitcher Joan Joyce with the caption, now with women's athletics gaining more attention, she is finally beginning to receive wider recognition. 
a photo of O.J. Simpson struggling to lift 250 pounds during the made-for-TV superstars competition, and a story by the Soviet press agency TASS headlined, Soviet Winter Swimmers, They Are the Walruses. Pretty good. <laughs> okay. March 1976, Mike J. Column headlined, Dick Young Defends Met Racism. Novosti Press Agency story, quote, some doctors study role of sports in health. And two photos, one of the Soviet of a Soviet pairs figure skating team at the World Championships and one of Fred Carter of the 76ers driving past Dave Bing of the Bullets. <laughs> Both strong contenders. Strong contenders. It's hard why, to choose. Why choose? Why choose? Uh, Josh, what's your shake tiller? The ratings percentage index, otherwise known as the RPI, was not so long ago the most hated statistic in sports. The RPI was the tool that the NCAA Basketball Selection Committee used to help inform its selection of teams for the NCAA tournament. And it was both primitive and crummy. The RPI uh, includes just three components. 25% of the formula is based on a team's winning percentage. Primitive. 50% uh, of the formula is based on its opponent's winning percentage, and 25% is based on its opponent's opponent's winning percentage. Add that together, my uh, math major friends, and wholly 75% of this formula has nothing to do with basketball. It's just based on scheduling. You could be the worst team in the known universe, the history of the known universe. And if you played a bunch of tough opponents, you were going to have a very good RPI. As Ken Pomeroy, the uh, statistical maven of college basketball, noted in a piece for Slate in 2011, a ranking system that does not account for margin of victory, and RPI does not, is not useful at all as a predictor of future results. It also hurts teams from weaker conferences, he wrote, which play weaker schedules and thus do not get rewarded with a sweet uh, strength of schedule bump. They also don't get rewarded if they run up the score, if they have a good margin of victory against those schedules, which is a key indicator of team quality. But going into this year, good news, the NCAA kicked the RPI to the curb. They replaced it with a formula called NET that supposedly considers game results, strength of schedule, game location, scoring margin, offensive and defensive efficiency, and the quality of wins and losses. I say supposedly because the actual formula has not been released. It's it's uh, private. When the first net rankings came out in November, Ohio State was number one. Ohio State, who is not very good this year. Loyola Marymount was number 10, which has not been very good since Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball. That was a long time ago. Nate Silver tweeted that they were the worst rankings I've ever seen in any sport <laughs> ever. Which is a little bit it's of like a, a lot. exaggeration. Uh, then in January, uh, Will Wade of LSU, really good coach. No uh, qualms with that guy at all. No, he's – everything else you can say about Will Wade, he's very smart and very shrewd. And he is somebody who, by comparison with the average college basketball coach, is like understands math and analytics and knows how to use them to give the team an advantage. And he said that the net formula was wrong. Um, because he noted that by including both margin of victory and offensive and defensive efficiency, you're double counting. And they cap, according to Wade, according to his sources, uh, margin of victory is capped at 10 points by net, um, meaning that 
if you win by 10, it's the same as winning by 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 because they don't they want to discourage running up the score. And yet offensive and defensive efficiency are not capped. And so if you run up the score, you'll have a better offensive and defensive efficiency. And thus the net rating isn't disincentivizing the thing that it wants to disincentivize. And so Wade, with all of the bravado that he is known for, says they're going to have to readjust the formula. So that's Will Wade for you. Um, the reason that I wanted to uh, mention all of this, though, is that the RPI, just because it's not being used anymore, does not mean that it does not exist. The RPI is just happily trudging along, ranking teams poorly. You can still find the rankings on various websites. Kansas is number one this year, which is incredibly dumb because Kansas isn't very good, but just played a really uh, tough schedule. The new net the net rankings, if you look at them, they're actually fine. Gonzaga, Virginia, Duke, Houston, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, Michigan State, Texas Tech, and Michigan are the top ten. Those are all good team good teams. They're all going to be ranked very highly, get good seeds, and then see a tournament. But the one thing that's actually interesting is that so Ken Pomeroy said in 2011 that uh, the RPI penalizes teams from weaker conferences. It's not actually clear based on these first net rankings that um, they will be better for the smaller conference school. So Wofford is 14 in the net compared to 28 in the RPI. So that's clearly an improvement. Um, good for Wofford. They're going to get a good seat in the tournament. But um, UNC Greensboro is another team from the Southern Conference. They have a really good record. They only have five losses. They've got uh, you know, high 20s and wins, they're 30 in the RPI. And if you're 30 in the RPI in the past, that's a team that's going to get very, very strong at large consideration. They're only 57 in the net. And I was thinking about why. And the reason why they're not uh, ranked that high in the net is that maybe they're not very good. Their offensive and de- defensive efficiency are not great. According to the Pomeroy rankings, they're number one out of more than 350 schools in luck which is, um, you know, they've basically won every close game that they have been in, which is if you're predicting future results, that's not something that's repeatable. And so it seems like maybe the net rankings actually are, uh, since they're better at adjudicating and determining what uh, teams are good, it's maybe not going to be great for the small conference schools, but only if they aren't good. Early returns suggest. Toledo also hurt by the net rankings. What about Penn? Penn, I'm not going to look. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup. In our bonus segment this week, Stefan and I talk about our favorite Dan Jenkins passages. The novels were a way for him to get, quote unquote, locker room talk for Jenkins to get that stuff uh, into uh, into print when he couldn't in Sports Illustrated. But this, I think it is an example of how uh, the off the field realm was not uh, totally absent from his SI work. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 